Welcome. It's great to be here with you. It's a privilege to worship with you. We're looking at a New Testament reading in Acts. We're going through a series called The Birth of the Church, and this is our New Testament reading, Acts 2, 14 through 21. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that each of us here would take hold of that invitation yet again, whether it's for the hundredth or thousandth time or maybe the first time, that we would call upon you in order that we would be saved, that we would be rescued, that we would be taken out of the life that we used to live, lived away from you, apart from you, for our own ends, and be rescued, and be set in this community that is not simply about meeting our own needs, but is in mission, is a community that is meant to be, through your power, through your spirit, a gift to the world outside. And I pray that we would take that seriously. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would send us again this morning. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now, of course, I can't possibly do justice to the 
rhetorical effect of that speech, part of that speech. But it's, of course, Martin Luther's famous speech that was the rallying cry of the civil rights movement. He had certain promises, certain promises in his mind from Scripture, but also certain promises from our founding documents that he was dreaming about coming true, that he saw a lack and he dreamt that that lack could be bridged. And throughout this speech, throughout his career, he uses biblical passages, biblical imagery to get people to dream with him, to see reality differently, to see how the world could be. And it's some of the very imagery that Peter uses, that Paul uses, that the speeches throughout the books of Acts, book of Acts uses. Peter in this sermon pulls from this, these ancient promises, these ancient prophecies. But he isn't only claiming that one day he hopes they'll be fulfilled. One day, if you do this and that, then they'll be fulfilled. But that those standing in front of him are in those days. That the last days prophesied by Joel, by Micah, by Hosea, by Ezekiel, by all of these ancient prophets, these last days that would finally come, have now come to pass in, in those, in the lives of those that are standing and hearing Peter preach. Now here's about the time where I normally lay out my three points. But I've noticed that in the last few weeks, my sermons have been quite long. So thank you for putting up with me. And I'm going to give you a, a bit of a favor, give you a bit of a gift. And I'm only, only going to have one point this week. No promises on how long that point is, but only <laughs> one point. The dreams of the gospel. The dreams of the gospel. We're studying a book called The Acts of the Apostles, but it could very easily have been called The Addresses of the Apostles, The Speeches of the Apostles, because speeches, sermons, make up over a quarter of the book. And they're meant to explain what just happened. These great, fantastic things continue to happen, beginning in the life and work and death and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter, begin, Peter stands up to explain what just happened. That's what the book of Acts is designed to do, is to explain what just happened in the gospel of Luke. And we saw last week people, the, the apostles, pouring into the, into the streets, speaking different languages. They were speaking about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in languages that they didn't know. And Peter now is saying, here's what happened. Luke described the event. Now Peter is explaining the, the event. And there's a good dose of cynicism towards these men and women that spill into the street prophesying. They're drunk. They're drunk. How else can you explain this type of thing? We've all seen people who are really drunk, and some of them lie face down in the street. But others become very chatty. They're exuberant. They talk a lot, and sometimes even more eloquently than they do when they're sober. And so Peter uses a bit of humor here. It's very funny, well, far, funny as far as the Bible goes. And he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay close attention to my words. These people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Come on. Don't you have any more imagination than that? It's only nine in the morning. They're not 
drinking so much that they're speaking in other languages. Well, Peter, we're out of guesses then. What is happening? And Peter says, this is what we've been dreaming about. To this congregation of Jews gathered to hear him explain the events of Jesus, explain the events that have just happened, the apostles pouring into the street, he says, this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been dreaming about. Joel prophesied about the last days when God would bring newness of life, when he would begin to unwind all that is sad and untrue about the world. It's not the last day, but it's the last days. And Peter says, this is that. What you've just seen, this is that. This is the old ancient promises coming true in your presence. We've entered into the last days. You see, Joel begins with afterward. He's looking to what will happen, but Peter drops that, and instead of saying afterward, he says, in the last days. In other words, right now, in these days, this is what is happening. Joel is looking to the future. Peter is saying, right now. These people aren't drunk. They're experiencing the fulfillment of a promise that God would pour out his spirit on all people. Sons, daughters, young, old, male, female, everyone. And the pouring out here is not like you see at a bar where you pour the bottle slowly into the glass so that it doesn't overflow, so that it doesn't foam up. This is turning a bucket upside down. It's emptying the heavens of grace. People talk about Portland as if it rains a lot here, but it it really doesn't. It rains a lot of days, but it doesn't rain a lot of volume. In fact, Portland, in Portland, we receive less rain than many Midwestern, many Southern cities during the year. And in fact, growing up in the South, I kind of miss the rain. I mean, real rain. It happens occasionally here, but growing up in coastal Alabama, The sun could be shining brightly. It could be 95 degrees, and these great big thunderous gray storm clouds would roll in off the Gulf of Mexico and just dump gallons and gallons of water. It would be a torrential downpour. It would be a a monsoon. Not the mist that we call rain here, but the pounding half-inch-wide raindrops that leave a bruise when they hit you. Thunder and lightning, and everything gets wet. Everything is drenched. That's the imagery that Joel is using here, that there will be an outpouring that is so rich, that is so great of the Spirit, that everyone will not just get a little misty, but they will be drenched. Everyone gets wet. It's indiscriminate. God's grace is so generous that it comes not simply in a sprinkling, but in an absolute downpour. And who does it come upon? Who does this downpour come upon? Not upon the deserving, not upon the privileged classes, not upon the priests and religious people who have done all of the best work expecting the kingdom, not upon one ethnic group, not upon one gender, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Irrespective of who you are, you can't call upon the name of the Lord and not get drenched. And what does it mean to be a part of this lavish outpouring? I will pour out my spirit, 
God says in verse 18, and they shall prophesy. You see, encountering the real God is not just this internal experience that you have. It's not just receiving three new steps to spiritual prosperity. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's having one's life. It's having one's future. It's having one's preoccupations completely turned upside down, completely drenched with the new hope. John Stott, who has died a few years back, was a great British preacher, commentator. He says, all of God's people are now prophets, just as all are also priests and kings. Martin Luther understood prophecy here as the knowledge of God through Christ, which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. In fact, it is this universal knowledge of God through Christ by the Spirit, which is the foundation of the universal commission to witness. Because we know him, we must make him known. Do you see what he's getting at? With this lavish outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all believers in Jesus, without distinction of age, without distinction of gender, social status, even talent or calling or ethnicity, receive the outpouring of the Spirit, receive the wisdom and the ability in order to know God, to have a personal one-to-one relationship with Him, while at the same time receiving everything that you need to also make Him known in your spheres of influence, in the world that you inhabit. We see strange occurrences when the gospel comes. We see strange happenings, fantastic things when the Spirit gets poured out. The Spirit of God makes people dream. The Spirit of God makes people dream of different things, of different circumstances, dream of answers that they didn't consider before, dream of a world that doesn't exist now. When the Spirit shows up, people confess their sins. People confess their shortcomings to one another and to God. People offer forgiveness to their enemies when the Spirit shows up. Fantastic, strange occurrences. Who does that in our natural state? When the Spirit shows up, people give up resources, give up possessions in a sacrificial way on behalf of other people. They rethink their ambitions They reconsider what makes them special. They reconsider the pathways to God. When the Spirit shows up, they begin to dream new dreams. And maybe your dreams are not, don't involve thousands of people coming to the Lincoln Memorial and a whole new way of thinking about civil rights. Maybe none of us here will have that sort of happening in our life. But your dreams certainly can involve your friends and your neighbors and your family and your workplace, your spheres of influence. Because what Jesus is saying, what what Peter is saying, is that there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon you if you are in Christ. And so irrespective of your talent, irrespective of your station in life, irrespective of your status at work, you can be one through whom the Spirit pours out grace to other people. 
And therefore, dream. Dream big dreams about those that you're in relationship with, about your world. And things will start to look strange. Things will start to look strange. Maybe you'll be asked, are you crazy? (laughs) Are you drunk? And now here's where, if Peter was smart, if he wanted people to join his movement, he would give them a very rational, simple explanation, a very mathematical thing. If you'll do this and be a part of this, then God will reward you. But that's not what's going on at all. In fact, Peter ups the ante. I will show wonders in the heavens above, quoting Joel, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Now, these are, of course, not literal descriptions of reality. This is apocalyptic literature. And anyone listening would know this very well, that these were regular ways of referring to those things that in our world we would call earth-shattering. Things don't really shatter the earth. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a way of speaking about something that changes reality. It's something that shakes the foundations of normal human expectations so much that we might say it tears the very fabric of society. It's not literal. We're trying to describe something very unusually disruptive. And that's what the Spirit coming upon this small band of people is. It's unusually disruptive, and it goes on to tear the very fabric of society. And notice, blood, smoke, darkness, fire, and then what? Salvation. Rescue. We get these terrible, scary, fearful images, and then salvation. Sweet, tender things, beautiful hope, terrible, then beautiful. This salvation is so significant that it tears the very fabric of society that causes us to dream about a different world. But it comes in such a way that we have to describe it in ways that seem fantastical, terrible, and yet beautiful at the same time. Maybe you've read George R.R. Martin's The the, um, Game of Thrones. HBO has made it into uh, quite a successful series. But following in some of other, the, the fantasy writers before him, he says, the best fantasy is written in the language of dreams. It is alive as dreams are alive, more real than real. For a moment at least, that long magic moment before we wake. Fantasy is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Reality is plywood and plastic, done up in mud brown and olive drab. Fantasy taste of habaneros and honey, cinnamon and cloves, rare red meat and wines as sweet as summer. Reality is beans and tofu. Reality is the strip malls of Burbank, the smokestacks of Cleveland, the parking garage in Newark. Fantasy is the towers of Minas Tirith. The ancient stones of Gormengast, the halls of Camelot. Fantasy flies on the wings of Icarus, reality on Southwest Airlines. I guess he had a bad experience. I don't know why he picks on them. 
We read fantasy, get this, to find the colors again. There is something old and true in fantasy that speaks to something deep within us, to the child who dreamt that one day he would hunt the forest of the night and feast beneath the hollow hills and find a love to last forever somewhere south of Oz and north of Shangri-La. Fantasy is written in the language of dreams. Fantasy invites us into a world that's more real than real. And what is Peter doing here? He is giving us fantasy truth. Fantasy, a fantasy world that actually becomes reality. Salvation that's terrible and beautiful. Something that no one would think about. No one would conjure this up. No one would invent this. It's so different than any other approach to God, any other world religion. Salvation that's terrible and beautiful. Scary and fantastic and yet tender and sweet. Let's look at those two things in conclusion. Terrible and beautiful. The salvation of the Lord is terrible and beautiful because what happens first? Preaching... Hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God begins to strip us, strip us of our exterior because we clothe ourselves in accomplishments, in reputation, in knowledge, in pretensions, in security, in phoniness. And the gospel begins to strip us of all the ways that we go about the world to insulate ourselves from reality, to hide, to keep other people thinking things about us that are a lie. It's terribly scary to encounter the gospel because it strips us naked. The gospel, the good news, is bad before it's good. It's tragedy before it's comedy because it strips us bare in order ultimately to clothe us in that which is really real. It tells us about these fantastic worlds that you could inhabit, but first, you must be stripped naked. Bad news first, then good news. Terrible before beauty. And even more terrible, more terrible than us being stripped naked. Jesus is stripped naked. The weight of our sin is put onto him. The righteous one, the messenger of heaven, the son of God, goes to the cross and is punished for you and for I. And how does Luke describe this event? Do you remember? The same writer that's writing Acts, how did he describe the events of the Passion Week? Blood. Literally, in this case, Jesus bleeds out for you and I. But then darkness, that darkness hovered over the cross, over the crucifixion. Darkness. And there's a tear, a tear in the fabric of the temple, a tear in the very fabric of society in that day, that it's not just the priest that can go in, but everyone, male, female, rich, poor, anyone. The gospel is so inclusive, but in order to be inclusive, it has to tear the very fabric of society. It tears the temple, the temple into, not the temple into, but the temple carpet, the rug into. Things are coming undone in fantastic ways. Bad news before it's good. Terrible before it's beautiful. And then Peter quoting Joel, I will show 
wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's beautiful. Not only terrible, but beautiful. Not only scary, fantastic, but also tender and soft and inviting and welcoming. You see, the terror of our sin is put on the back of Jesus, and we get beauty. The death of our world is thrust on him, and you and I get life. Life for everyone who will call upon him. Not just special people, not just clergy, not just men, not just the old, but everyone. And not those who expect to be included, but those who look at this great gift and say, how could I possibly get this? How could God possibly bestow the gift of life on me? Not those who come, who seeing this event say, well, of course this is for me. But those who say, I have nothing to, earn, to gain this gift, to give to God in order to gain this gift. We read fantasy to find the colors again. That's what George Martin says, and I think he's on to it. But here, the difference is, as Frederick Buechner talks about the Bible, it's fantasy come true. It's fantasy coming, becoming real. It's seen beyond the reality that you and I experience to what is ultimately real, that is eternally real. And the gospel, if we'll read it rightly, is like a fairy tale come true. It's fantasy truth. And it causes us to dream about a new world, a new life. But it's interesting. George Martin goes on to say, of Christians. They can keep their heaven. When I die, I'd sooner go to Middle Earth. And perhaps this is your response this morning. Maybe us Christians have kind of flattened out the gospel. We've flattened out the exciting, fantastic element. And we've made it more about minding your manners. We've made it more about maintaining the status quo. Not speaking truth to power, but keeping those in power regardless of their intentions. Maybe we've made the gospel about behave yourself, don't have too much fun, and then when you die, you get to go to heaven. And you are owed an apology for that sort of preaching because this isn't salvation in the Bible. Salvation means knowing God's rescuing power, power revealed in Jesus which anticipates in the present God's final act of deliverance, where heaven and earth begin to merge, where heaven and earth become one. And in a sense, maybe George Martin, his vision of heaven is more realistic than what is often preached on. Heaven often seems like the most boring place on earth. We're in clouds, we're floating some of the images are harps and singing. Who wants to do that for the rest of their lives? Maybe it is more like Middle Earth, minus the orcs and the death and the dying. God's final act of deliverance 
in that deliverance. Heaven and earth are one. And Peter says, anticipating that, call on the name of the Lord to know that salvation, to receive forgiveness and rescue. The last days, not the last day. Salvation is still available. But what being in the last days means, what Peter is saying, is that, the, that salvation has begun and that God is graciously forestalling the last day so that you can be included, so that you can call on the name of the Lord. And at the end of the day, this sermon really isn't simply a pitch, a pitch to dream big dreams like Martin Luther King. It's not even to put before you the question of, do your dreams involve Jesus? It's really, do you realize that Jesus' dreams involve you? Do you realize that Jesus dreams big dreams for you? That Jesus dreams about you? Do you realize that's the fantasy world? That's the amazing, fantastic thing that Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, dreams about you and dreams about being with you and offers you his unrevocable, irrevocable welcome and embrace. I'll close with Wendell Berry, the poem in the front of the bulletin. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in town would be a place where we practice resurrection where the gospel comes first into our hearts and renovates us and that we are those that don't necessarily expect that we would be included, that we're surprised by being included, that we don't gloat and lord it over others, but that we are humbled by your grace, that we're humbled by your welcome, even of us, and therefore let us be a place of welcome for other people, a place where people Feel free to wrestle with you. Feel free to wrestle with doubts. Feel free to ask big questions and to dream big dreams. And I pray that this church would assist them in that. Lord, I pray that you would make us a church for others and that we would be an instrument in your hands, just as the early church was, the early disciples who left that room speaking in other languages. Maybe it's not that fantastic. Maybe that's not what's normative, but that we would go, that we would take our dreams, that we would be ones who dream, that we would realize that you dream about us and then take that message to others. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would make that true. Amen.